0: Now let's look at um, the text that uh, we read together today. Here, picking up in really the eighth chapter of uh, the book of Acts as we're making our way through the book of Acts, and let me let me remind you of. Um, something that Luke recorded for us in the very first chapter of Acts. And maybe you remember this. In the first chapter of Acts, Luke tells us that Jesus, before he uh, ascended, after his uh, resurrection, before he ascended, he had told the disciples uh, that they were to to wait in Jerusalem because they were going to receive power when the Spirit came upon them. And he said, and you will be witnesses to me in Jerusalem and in Judea and Samaria, and ultimately to the ends of the earth. So everything up until this point in Acts, everything has taken place in Jerusalem. So the first part of the mission, phase one, if you will, Jerusalem, they have accomplished that now. A few chapters earlier, Uh, We read there were the leaders of the the nation, they accused the disciples uh, of this. It was a good thing from our point of view. They said, you have filled Jerusalem with this man's teaching, speaking of Jesus. So they did it. They accomplished the mission of starting in Jerusalem. Now, phase two of the mission begins. So now the gospel going from Jerusalem is going to Judea and Samaria but it's going in what I believe was a completely unexpected way, and that is through persecution. Now, in our last teaching, we looked specifically at the martyrdom of Stephen, and now we see as we pick up and continue the story that a great persecution uh, breaks out uh, as a result of what happened with Stephen. So, the aftermath is that a great persecution arose against the church, and uh, all but the apostles were scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria. And as I previously said, uh, remember, persecution and martyrdom have done more to advance the gospel than to stop its progress, and here we see that the outward thrust of the gospel into Judea and Samaria is directly related to the believers being driven by persecution out of Jerusalem. And that brings us to a point that I just want to touch on just for a second again, and we we kind of, you know, talked about this extensively last week, but let me just remind you that God often uses adverse or unpleasant circumstances to move us out of our comfort into his will because we have a tendency it's just a human tendency to settle into a comfortable place now i, I think we could argue that things in jerusalem had become you know fairly comfortable for most people they were just it was great you got all of these new uh believers in Jesus as the Messiah. There's at least 5,000, we know, because the the record gives us that number, but there were probably more. And everybody was just having a a great, great time, maybe to the point where they even sort of just forgot about the mission. They might have just, you know, not really thought that, hey, maybe we should go to to out, you know, out further into Judea. Maybe we should even go to Samaria. Maybe that was just not even in their minds at this point. But now, suddenly, through this persecution, they're driven out, and it's as they're driven out that the gospel actually goes. So, I don't think that uh, they they ever imagine that that's how the, the mission would be advanced. But that is what happened, and, and I say that because I just want to remind you that sometimes the discomfort, sometimes the unpleasant things that are happening in our lives, they're actually God's way of moving us, because we can get settled. We can settle so easily into comfort and to complacency. And and so sometimes the Lord sort of, you know, um, he the nest, you know, he, he wants to kick us out of the nest. So he stirs up the nest uh, in order to move us out. So um, j- just a, a quick reminder, maybe somebody here today just needs to be encouraged by that truth. So what we want to do today is there are three things that I want to focus on. Number one, how the gospel spread. Number two, how the gospel impacted lives. And uh, number three, how the gospel transformed the city. But before we do that, I want to just take a minute and talk about Samaria and the Samaritans. Now, some of you are, are familiar with uh, Samaria and the Samaritans, uh, but some of you aren't. And we need this. uh, I think this is a good backdrop for what we're talking about. Now, Samaria, if you look at a map, Samaria was just smack dead center between Jerusalem and the Galilee. So that's where Samaria was. Now, Samaria was uh, the ancient uh, capital of the northern kingdom. Maybe you remember at a certain point, uh, Israel split into two kingdoms, the northern and the southern. The northern was based in Samaria. The southern was based in Jerusalem. So this was formally the capital of the northern kingdom and uh, became the home of the Samaritans. Now, now prior to the Assyrian inv- invasion in 721 BC, There there were no Samaritans. They, They didn't exist as a people. Because what happened is when the Assyrians invaded and conquered Samaria and led most of the Israelites into captivity, they left a number of Israelites in the land, but then they relocated people from other parts of their kingdom into the region of Samaria so that they would intermingle and intermarry with the people so that that people that remained in the land would lose their identity as Israel. And so that's exactly what happened. So they became the Samaritans. They were a mixed race, basically. They, were, uh, they had Israeli blood, but then there were these other nations that they co-habitated uh, with and, and you know, married and, and so forth. So, so the Samaritans became a, a, a separate people from Israel uh, after 721 BC. Now as a separate people, they had a separate religion and their religion was a mixture of Judaism and paganism. So remember, they're, they're partially Israeli. I'd say Israeli instead of Jewish because Jewish is more connected to Judah. But so they're, they're partially Israeli. They have that long history of you know being Israelites. But then the pagan influence comes in, so the religion becomes really a mixture of the two. Uh, they built a rival temple to Jerusalem and established a rival priesthood. And that temple was built on Mount Gerizim, which is a, a, a mountain there uh, near Samaria. And it was built in 400 BC. Now, they also had their own version of the scriptures, and what they did is they rejected everything except the first five books of the Bible, the Pentateuch, they, everything uh, except what Moses wrote. But what they did is it was a, it was a translation into Aramaic, and then they sort of adjusted it to, to sort of you know fit their perspective on things. so they had a temple, they had a priesthood, they had their own uh, version of the scriptures, but in approximately 107 BC, a Jewish ruler known as John Harkonus, he destroyed the temple on Mount Gerizim and subjugated the Samaritans so that by the time we get to the New Testament, that's where we are, by the time we get to the New Testament period, there are literally centuries Of racial and religious hostility between the Jews and the Samaritans. So, the reason I'm giving us all of this background is to show us that the gospel now is going to not just geographically leave Jerusalem and Judea, it's not only crossing a geographical barrier, it is crossing a, or a geographical border, it is crossing a racial and a religious border as well. And you see, at this point, even though Jesus had spoken to the disciples about the fact that uh, he had other sheep, uh, about the fact that the gospel was gonna go into all the world, at this point, they still didn't quite get it. They, they still thought of it as primarily a Jewish thing. I mean, Jesus is the Jewish Messiah. He's, gonna, he's the, uh, the descendant of David who's gonna sit on the throne of David. He's gonna rule over the house of Jacob. And so in their minds, the Gentiles, you know, eventually probably would be brought in to be blessed by this, but they never imagined that the Gentiles were going to be brought in and and just made one with them in the sense that the New Testament speaks of it. So this this is a radical thing that is happening here, but remember... Jesus himself had already begun to break down that wall of division, and that had happened during his uh, earthly ministry when he intentionally went into Samaria with the gospel. We have that beautiful story of Jesus meeting that woman, she's just commonly referred to as the Samaritan woman, uh, at the well, and he has a conversation with her. Uh, She's actually shocked because she's like, what are you a Jew doing speaking to me? Uh, I'm a Samaritan. Jews and Samaritans, we don't talk to each other. So that, that was the tension that existed between them. But Jesus said, if you knew who I was and if you knew the gift of God, you would have asked me and I would have given you living water. Anyway, Jesus goes on to reveal to her that he is actually the long-awaited Messiah. And she goes and she tells the people back in her town that that's the case. And they come out and, and Jesus is with them for a few days and he preaches to him and many of them embrace him but now some time has passed and the samaritans have probably in the minds of the church in Jerusalem they've probably just been forgotten not intentionally but just well hey we're you know we're doing this but but remember Jesus said the gospel was going to go Jerusalem Judea Samaria and so here we are the gospel is now going into Samaria. And so the first point that I want us to look at is how the gospel spread. And so it tells us right here in verse four, therefore those who were scattered because of the persecution that was led by Saul, uh, those who were scattered went everywhere preaching the word. So this is the first thing that I want us to notice. How how is the gospel spread those who were scattered who were those who were scattered it was just everybody all of these believers and as i already mentioned there were at least 5000 that were in the city it's probably more by this point but but everybody except the apostles they've got to leave jerusalem because the 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 persecution is so intense like the third verse says saul he made havoc of the church, entering every house and dragging off men and women, committing them to prison. So, you know, people were saying, man, we got to get out of town. This is dangerous. And as they went, they preached the word everywhere. Now, the picture is this. The picture is that ordinary Christians, as they went into these various communities outside of Jerusalem, ordinary Christians told their story and talked about Jesus. They talked about who he was. They talked about what he had done. They talked about how they had been uh, forgiven and transformed. In other words, they just simply went out telling their testimonies or or telling the story of the gospel. You see, the word preached here where it says that they went everywhere preaching, that's that word means just to, to talk about. It just means to tell it. And so that's what they did. Ordinary Christians just going about life and telling the story of what Christ had done. But now we come to Philip. And so verse five says, then Philip went down to the city of Samaria and preached Christ to them. And what I want us to see is this is a different thing that Philip, that is being described that Philip did from what the, the other group did. Now, Philip, remember, um, if you go back to chapter six, which we studied a few weeks ago, there was a situation that arose where they needed seven men who were of good reputation, full of the Holy Spirit and wisdom, to, to take care of this practical ministry. Remember, it was a d- distributing um, the, to the needs of the widows. Now. Out of the seven men that were chosen, Stephen was one, and now he's been martyred, he was put to death. Another one is Philip. So now we follow the story of Philip. Now Philip, he is known, he's referred to later on in the history, he's actually referred to as Philip the Evangelist. In Acts 21 verse eight, that's the way he's referred to. Paul, at that point, Saul, we know, Saul gets converted, he becomes Paul, uh, and way, way down the road in the history here, uh, he comes back into the land, and he goes to the house of this man, Philip, and Philip is designated there as Philip the Evangelist, one of the seven. And when it says here that Philip went to Samaria, now, why Philip went to Samaria, who knows? I mean, maybe he just felt a prompting from the Spirit, like he was supposed to go there. Maybe he... Uh, he wasn't with Jesus when Jesus had gone there originally. There is a Philip who was an apostle who went with Jesus, but this is a different person. But maybe he heard the story from them about the work that uh, God had done among the Samaritans during the public ministry of Jesus. We don't, we don't know why he went to Samaria, but, or maybe he just heard that Jesus said that we were supposed to go there, so that's where I'm going. But note this, this is not a place that a Jewish person would normally go. It was Samaria. They they were not on friendly terms. There was racial tension. There was religious hostility. But regardless of that, Philip, for whatever reason, he knows that that's where he is supposed to go. So he goes and it says that he preached Christ to them. And this is a different word. There's two Greek words that are being used here. The first word in the in reference to those who were scattered and went everywhere preaching, uh, like I said, it means more to, to, to tell the story. The word here, it means to proclaim. So this word is really more what we would probably think of when we think of preaching. Because when we when we think of preaching, I think most of us, at least you know, I do. When I think of preaching, I think of somebody who is uh, you know forceful, passionate, articulate, authoritative, um, in in a good sense. But you know, just there, there's a powerful, clear, direct proclamation of something. That's what Philip was doing. So it's almost like you could imagine you've got the two things. You've got the people just going everywhere, whatever new community they're coming into. They're telling the story about Jesus of Nazareth. They're telling about how he died and rose again from the dead and how the Holy Spirit came down and how he's changed their lives. But then you go into Samaria and here's this guy, Philip. And he's maybe like in the city center and he's preaching. He's proclaiming boldly and authoritatively the gospel and the reason why I'm emphasizing and developing this is because what I want us to see is that God uses both everyday believers to tell the good news and gifted evangelists to proclaim it, and we need both. Now, remember, the goal is to get the gospel out. That's what, that's what they were supposed to do, and that's what, guess what, we are supposed to do as well. But sometimes we make the mistake of just sort of depending on the gifted evangelist, we think, oh, well, I'm, I'm not an evangelist. I can't do that. Uh, that's for somebody else to do. Well, right. We're, we're not necessarily gifted evangelists, all of us. But we all are to go out and to tell the story of who Jesus is and what he's done. So it, it has to be both. And God uses both. And sometimes uh, it's through just the, the ordinary... Uh, Christian out in the out in the community out in the workplace or you know wherever you might be you're you're telling your story as the opportunity arises and it's through that that God is planting seeds in people's lives it's through that that God is is bringing the information necessary to them for salvation but then of course there are those those gifted evangelists and thank God for them and we need more of them who have those kinds of opportunities to proclaim uh, in a clear, direct, powerful way, the gospel of Jesus Christ. In uh, my generation, the most common name when you thought of an evangelist was Billy Graham. Everybody just sort of knew that was uh, even unbelievers. Uh, Billy Graham became kind of a household name for people uh, and, he, and he was known. This is the guy who preaches. This is a guy who fills stadiums. This is a guy who has an audience of a million people. Um, you know, he, he was that that evangelist. Uh, in, in our time now, Billy's almost 100 years old. He's still alive. Uh, but in our time now, we would think of somebody like Greg Laurie. Greg is that same kind of uh, person in the sense of that gifting who... You know, 60,000 people come to a stadium to listen to him get up and to preach clearly and authoritatively and, and passionately the gospel message. But again, my point is this, that the gospel must go forth verbally to have an impact. You see, we cannot make the mistake of thinking that we never need to say anything. You know, we, we might just think, well, you know, I'll just live my Christian life and that'll, that'll speak loud enough. Now, we should live our Christian lives, make no mistake about it. But we have to say things. We have to, to verbally express. Paul uh, later would write to the church in Rome and he would ask this question. He would say, how can they believe in whom they have not heard? And how will they hear unless someone tells them? That, that is the reality. If people are gonna hear, they've got to have someone tell them. And it's either going to be the ordinary Christian, the average Christian person on the job, in the neighborhood, in the community, at the sporting event, or you know whatever other context you want to put it in, uh, or it's going to be that evangelist. Now, perhaps you've heard the saying, falsely attributed to St. Francis of Assisi. Uh, maybe you've heard it. This is kind of a paraphrase. There's different ways of it being communicated, but maybe you've heard this saying uh, Preach the gospel and if necessary, use words. You ever heard that before? Preach the gospel and if necessary, use words. Well, first of all, uh, Francis of Assisi never said that. Uh, he was a preacher. He, he did not say that. It isn't true. It's one of those uh, myths that sometimes arise. But here's the truth you must use words to preach the gospel. You, you can't preach the gospel without words. It's almost like saying, uh, feed the poor, and if necessary, use food. <laughs> you know, okay, that doesn't make any sense, right? Well, likewise, it doesn't make any sense to say preach the gospel, but, it, you know, if necessary, use some words. No, of course, we want our lives to lend support uh, to our words, but listen, it's not your life. It's not my life that saves people. It's the gospel that saves people. That's the truth about it. Now, again, our lives can certainly lend credibility. And if our lives are completely uh, inconsistent with the message, then you know people might have a hard time listening to it. But the truth of the matter is people are going to get saved because other people tell them about the good news of salvation through Jesus. So that's how the gospel gets spread. It gets spread by word of mouth. We talk about it. We tell about it. Now, I know that for some people, this is very difficult. It's even difficult to hear this because you feel like, oh gosh, this is so, oh, this is so hard for me. I just, I get so embarrassed or I get so nervous or, uh, you know, I understand that. But listen, God will help you. The Holy Spirit is there to, to, to help you and he will open up doors. You don't have to go kick a door down, but when God opens a door, you want to walk through it, so to speak. And this is where we have to just remember uh, that, you know, we do need to speak to people. I, I was talking to a young lady after the, the first service today, and she said, you know, she said, I, I, that whole thing that you talked about, she said, that was me. She said, I am absolutely petrified to speak to people. I just hate, uh, I hate rejection, I I just, that's the worst thing in the world. So for me, it's like, I know if I talk to this person, they're gonna reject me. So she had the hardest time. And she, but she knew at the same time that she needed to be able to open her mouth. So, uh, you know, she told me about a book that she read and, and it, how much it helped her, but, but she was talking about one part of the book where the guy was saying, you know, look, you can have the, uh, you can pray all you want and you can have the soil and all of that, but unless you put the seed in it, nothing's going to happen. And that's true. So let's not make the mistake, not to undermine the importance of living a godly life, but just remember that just, you know, um, well, another, another quick example, another lady shared this with me this morning. She said, you know, I had a friend when I was young and I saw that something changed in her life. There was something really different. And I was, I was curious about what that was. And she said, you know, it wasn't for seven years until she finally told me that what it was is that she had become a Christian. And she said, I was really upset. Why didn't you tell me this before? You see, because if we go on the idea that, well, you know, it's just gonna be my life, that's not necessarily gonna make the connection because you might just be a nice person or you might be, uh, for all people know, you're nice because you're a Buddhist or you're nice because you're a Muslim or you're nice, you know, you might even be a nice atheist. People aren't gonna know that your life your kindness, your grace, your love, that that's rooted in your faith in Jesus. You you have to communicate that. So that's how the gospel gets spread. Secondly, Let's look at how the gospel impacted lives then. And of course, the gospel impacts lives like this today. Now, the first thing, notice, Philip preached Christ, multitudes with one accord, heeded the things spoken by Philip, hearing and seeing the miracles which he did. Verse seven, for unclean spirits, crying with a loud voice, came out of many who were possessed, and many who were paralyzed and lame were healed. You see, when the gospel goes out, lives are impacted. Things happen. And listen, make no mistake about it. People are held captive by the devil. That, that's a reality. And just like it was a reality there in Samaria. Now, I told you a little bit about the background of the Samaritans, about the paganism and all of that. As we go on and read the rest of the chapter, we're going to find that there was this man Simon in the city of Samaria who was a sorcerer who had everybody kind of under his spell. And so as Philip comes, he's really coming, and through the gospel, the power of the devil is being broken. You see... It's the gospel that breaks the power of the devil over people's lives. And make no mistake about it, people's lives are messed up today. And one of the things that's contributing to that is the devil. And those demonic powers, it's, it's sure it's the sin that they're engaging in, but, but sometimes they're engaging in that sin because Satan has just bound them and they, they don't really have a way out. And they've tried to get out in some cases, but they can't. They're held captive, doing the devil's will. The gospel breaks that. Later on in the book of Acts, as, as you know, Saul gets converted, he becomes Paul, and very much later in the story, when he's actually arrested for preaching the gospel and he's standing before King Agrippa and he's explained to him, to Agrippa, what happened uh, to himself, uh, he tells the story of how he met Christ on the road to Damascus and how Jesus said this to him. He said, I'm going to send you to the Gentiles to turn them from darkness to light and from the power of Satan to the power of God. And that's what the gospel does. Paul in writing to the Romans chapter one, verse 16, he said, I'm not ashamed of the gospel of Christ for it is the power of God to salvation to everyone who believes it's the power of God. It breaks the power of the devil. That's what happens. The gospel sets us free from the bondage that Satan puts people in and liberates us. And then we read here, there's healing that takes place. And listen, healing still take place. Physical healing still take place. God knows when to heal. He's sovereign. And and, and yet when the gospel goes forth, Uh, Many times, God brings a a healing. And of course, the the overall description that we're having here is really the description of salvation is coming to Samaria. That's what's happening. People are getting saved through the gospel. The gospel is saving them and in the the process, healing them, in the process, delivering them from uh, the work of the devil in their lives. And, and as we look around us in our world today, I mean, how many of you just think that the world has gone totally crazy? Anybody think that here? <laughs> it's pretty crazy. I mean, it's like, wow, people think that today, and they not only think it, they believe it, and they're gonna kind of insist that you believe it too. I mean, it's it's pretty crazy stuff today. But you look at the things that people are into. You look at the captivity that they're held in. How is that going to be dealt with? Well, listen, it's only going to be dealt with through something more powerful than these other forces, and that's the gospel. But when the gospel comes and brings salvation, it brings a tremendous change. It impacts people's lives. And then thirdly, look at what happens. The gospel transformed the city. Look at the, the eighth verse. And there was great joy in that city. Now I am willing to bet that for hundreds of years there had not been great joy in the city of Samaria. When you look at their their history, when you look at the fact that they were, uh, you know, conquered by various nations, they were subjugated by these uh, this Jewish group at a, at a time. Uh, you know, this life was not good in Samaria. Remember the woman at the well. Remember she had been married five times and the person she was living with was was not her husband. So what's that an indication of? That's an indication of, man, I can't find anything to fulfill me. I can't find anything to make me happy. So I am willing to bet that there had not been any joy in that city, maybe, ever. Uh, But here's the report now. And there was great joy in that city. You see, the gospel produces joy. And joy is contagious. You know, when a person gets saved, and I want some of you to think with me back to your initial conversion. Think about what happened, how you came out of darkness into light, how you were set free from the power of Satan and brought under the, the grace of God. And remember how, how joyful you were. you were so excited my sins are forgiven. I know that I've got a place with God eternally in heaven. Uh, I can trust the Lord now. He's got a plan for my life. He take me, all of those things produce joy. And what happened from that? That joy spread, it was contagious. You started telling other people. But what happens to us? How is it that you know, five, 10, 15, 20 years go by and all of those things are still true, but what happened to the joy? How come we're not as excited about that as we used to be? Have we become too sophisticated where we think, oh, well, you know, when you're a young Christian, you kind of believe all that stuff, but now we know better. Uh, You know, life is tough, and yeah, life is tough, but God is still God, and he's good. And the reality of who he is and all that he's done for us and all that he's planned for us for the future, that ought to Uh, fill our hearts with joy, and if our hearts are filled with joy, that's going to spread. That's going to be contagious. Now, we're talking here about the city of Samaria, and I want to talk for a minute about cities Um, because the, the thing to think about here that I want us to think about is cities are often marked by an absence of joy. That's true today, just like it was back then, because in cities, and I'm talking about large cities, major cities... Uh, I mean, it's not limited to that, obviously, but you know, when you think about uh, large cities, they are often marked by a higher percentage of alcohol and drug abuse, violence, crime, homelessness, depression, loneliness, suicide. I mean, that, that's the reality of life in a in a large city. When I lived in London, I met more people in London that had had nervous breakdowns than I ever have met in in my entire life anywhere else. Because life is hard, it is difficult, it is challenging. More lonely people, more suicidal people, Uh, that's the reality. But here's the good news. The good news is that the gospel is, that's what it's for. It's for that very thing. Now, cities, you know, there was a time, it's, it's kind of changed recently, but there, there was a time back some years ago, a few decades back, uh, you know, when Christians, I'm gonna talk primarily about Christians, when Christians fled the cities. Christians didn't wanna be in the cities, why? Because they're full of crime, because they're full of, you know, drug abuse and violence and homelessness and, and all of that, so the Christians fled to the suburbs and the cities were left sort of abandoned. Now, there's been a, a, a bit of a reversal with that, which I think is really, really great. Uh, the generation of my kids, 20s and 30s, they have gravitated toward the cities. They wanna to go to the cities with the gospel. They, they look at all of that stuff and say, yeah, that's all bad, but that's what the gospel's for, and that's right, that's true. But what we need to understand is that the, the move in in the world is toward cities. 54% of the world's population live in cities today. Within 30 years, they say 66% of the world's population will live in cities. Now, what do you get in cities? You get crowded situations. That's why you get like a proliferation of people, which is a proliferation of sinners, which is a proliferation of sin. But that's also what the gospel is meant for. (laughs) The, The gospel is for sinners. And so we want to go where the sinners are. But remember, sometimes our comfort says, no, 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 let's just stay away from there because of those things. But we have to remember that God's heart is for people. And so we want to be aware of where the people are. And we want to consider going there, help people get there, knowing the potential in the city for the spread of the gospel is great. Let me give you just a few statistics of cities. I like, I, I, I like to know, like, you know about cities. I like to know the populations and things like that. So this is something that interests me. Uh, it might not interest you, but if not, at least you will know more about the population of cities than you did before you came today. So Uh, I just want to run through some cities. The largest city, and I'm talking population-wise, the largest city in the world is Tokyo. Tokyo has 38 million people. Now, did you know that the state of California, which has the largest uh, state population, we have 37 million people in our state? Did you know that Canada has less people than California? So I'm just trying to give you a comparison. Tokyo has 38 million people, and I think the, uh, the the number of Christians in Tokyo is something like, you know, 0. 0. 0.0.1. So those 38 million people are people who uh, would be like the people of Samaria. There's there's no joy in the city. Uh, Delhi in India, 25 million people. Shanghai. Uh, 23 million people. Mexico City, Mumbai, Sao Paulo, all have about a 21 million uh, population. Osaka, uh, Beijing, about 20 million. New York City, 18.5 million people. And that that includes, it's the greater area, including uh, parts of New Jersey there. But did you know that the greater Los Angeles area has basically about that same number of people? We are included in the greater Los Angeles area. They've just sort of grafted us in and said, you're part of us. So 3 million people in Orange County, 18.5 million in the greater LA area, Paris and London, 9 to 10 million. What is the point? The point is, these are population centers where the gospel is desperately needed and where the gospel has the greatest potential to spread. That's the thing that we have to see. So, we're talking about a bunch of things today. I realize that. But let's not forget that we're talking about Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. We're talking about we, we it's us. In this generation, we're the ones responsible. We have to get out there, we have to get the gospel to these places. And, and just like Philip, it was uncomfortable for Philip. Philip's Jewish. The Samaritans and the Jews, they don't, well, they don't get along. But you know, for whatever reason, Philip says, I'm going to Samaria. And he goes and he preaches. And there's a great work of God's spirit that takes place there. And so I'm in a sense, I'm saying this, I wanna challenge some of you, and especially those of you that are uh, younger, maybe in your 20s or 30s or 40s, uh, to think about this, to to realize that God might wanna do something through you in a city because all it takes is for one life to get chained, changed one person to get set free from sin and oppression for one person to get healed. And, and, you know, as as they're filled with joy and they start to just naturally talk about what's happened, that can just create a chain reaction. It's, it's the potential is there in these cities. And so we want to to recognize that and and understand that this is you know this is part of what all of this is about being being Christians you, you know becoming a Christian is not simply just to settle into the good life the comfortable life the, to live out the American dream uh, the Lord intends to get the gospel to all people and so he hasn't called us to settle into Uh, complacency. Now, I'm not saying that we can't live a comfortable life. I mean, you know, living in Orange County, you kind of do live a comfortable life for the most part, not diminishing that people do have problems. Of course they do. But, you know, relatively speaking, we live fairly comfortable lives. But listen, that's not our objective. That's not our goal. We don't want to just go out and just on our own, just put ourselves in an uncomfortable situation just for the sake of doing that. But what we want to do is we want to be open to the Lord changing our circumstances and stirring up the nest, like I said, and, you know, maybe launching us into something that we didn't think about or something that we weren't really preparing for or something, you know, maybe we weren't preparing for it, but God was preparing us for it. So The point here is this. God has not called us to settle down and live comfortable lives. He's called us to live missional lives. And a missional life is basically seeing yourself as you're on a mission 24-7. That's what I am. I'm on mission 24-7. That's what it is to be missional. So wherever I am, whatever I'm doing, and I'm saying I here as, you know, plurally, including us. (laughs) us. am <laughs> not telling you what I, I am doing. Uh, but, but I am hopefully doing this. I, I, I want to live missionally. I want to live my life for what God has. And if we all are living that way, the, the potential for the gospel to advance increases dramatically. And as God sends us into cities. Or, you know, it, it doesn't have to be a city. Obviously, God loves everybody everywhere, right? So it could be a village. Sometimes people go to villages, little tiny villages. Um, it doesn't matter. The The point is that where where the gospel hasn't gone, that's where it needs to go. And sometimes we overlook the place right in front of us like a big city because we think, oh, they've got plenty of churches, they've got this and that, but the reality is they don't, they don't have the gospel. So we wanna live missionally, meaning that, Lord, here I am. Uh, I'm, I'm ready for you to interrupt me. I'm ready for you to uh, interfere with my plans in my life and do what you wanna do. If you wanna send me in a new direction, if you wanna send me to a new location, if you wanna ship me across the planet, Lord, here I am. I'm available. That's how these guys were. That's how Philip was. Uncomfortable as it was, Philip goes to Samaria. And what does he find? Lo and behold, a completely receptive group of people who are just amazed at the gospel that he's preaching and they receive it. And there is great joy in the city. So in closing, I have mentioned the gospel several times over in this message. So just really quickly, what is the gospel? Well, the gospel is Christ, God's son came into the world. He died because I'm a sinner. He died in my place. He bore my sin. He paid the penalty for my breaking of God's law. And then he rose from the dead. And that resurrection from the dead shows that the price he paid was accepted. God raised him from the dead to say, I accepted that payment for the sins of the world. He raised him from the dead. And now for anyone who believes that, they are given a new life. Sins are forgiven. The spirit of God takes up residence in us. We become the children of God, the servants of God, the heirs of God, That's the gospel. And, And that simple message, listen, as I close, that simple message has the power to forever change a life in the most dramatic way. That simple message. And let's not forget that. It's the message It's the gospel. Paul says, I'm not ashamed of the gospel of Christ. It's the power of God. Paul understood this, that the life of God is in the seed of the gospel. You see, sometimes we think, oh, God, the message is so simple. What, I'm just going to tell this person to believe in Jesus and everything's going to be okay. You know what? Yes, you can tell them that because the Jesus you're telling them about is alive. The words that you're speaking to them are words of life. And those words will come into a person's life and they will produce the life of God. That's what being a Christian is, having the life of God produced in your life through the gospel, through that that work of God's spirit. So just remember the, the simple gospel. And of course, there's the simple gospel story of Jesus dying and rising again. But then there's the other component that's connected to your life. So you can tell your story. This is how the gospel worked in my life. And that's always so attractive and fascinating to people to hear like, wow, really that happened to you? That's amazing. And as you tell them, but, but I just want to say this in closing, Philip preached Christ. I think as Christians today, especially in America, we can get so distracted and end up sometimes preaching all kinds of things that aren't Christ. We can get caught up in in the political thing. We can get caught up in social issues. and, And we end up, you know, preaching things like that. Have you ever preached to somebody that they shouldn't use bad words? Have you ever preached to somebody that, hey, you know, you should stop smoking Ever preach to somebody like, hey, you know, you better not go out for that drink. You know what? That's not preaching Christ. That's preaching something else. It's basically preaching a morality. So let's just say, for argument's sake, that that person says you're right. I shouldn't smoke anymore. It's killing me. No, I I don't want to drink. I'm probably going to get in a car accident, so thank you. you. You know, you saved me there, or... You know, I, um, I'm not going to go do this or that. Great, okay. So what, what's the end result? Well, you just got a sinner who still got the same destination, but they just kind of cleaned up their life on the way to hell. <laughs> I mean, that's really what you end up with. That's why we don't preach those things. Or that's why we shouldn't preach those things. Let's preach Christ, because guess what? When people come to Christ, he changes them, and they start to think differently, and they start to act differently. I've told this story before, but years and years ago, there was some bad thing that happened um, with some public figure. And I remember Cheryl saying to me, Cheryl's my wife for those of you who don't know, who was raised in a Christian home from the time she was born. Um, And this was a very, you know, to her, a very disgusting thing. And she says, I don't know how anybody could even think like that. And I said, oh, I do. Because that's exactly how I used to think. But when I used to think that way, If somebody would have come along and said, hey, you shouldn't think that way, I would have said, get lost. What do you know? I don't care what you think. But what happened? I I changed. I agreed with her. That was disgusting. How did that happen? That happened because Jesus. You see, because Christ was preached to me and I received Christ. And guess what he did? He changed my heart and he changed my mind. And that's what he does. So let's keep that in mind, too. We want to preach Christ. That's that's our mission. Other people can preach other things. Let them. God bless them. Go for it. Preach that stuff. But let us be known, first and foremost, for preaching Christ. And let's not confuse conservatism or those kinds of things. Let's not confuse that with Christ, because they're different things. Philip went and preached Christ to them. And that's our mission as well. So, Lord, we thank you for the gospel, that it is indeed the power of God to salvation. We thank you that we see another uh, picture of that right here before us as the gospel goes into Samaria and saves people from sin and from death and from the devil and fills the city with great joy. Lord, that's what we want. We want that, Lord, in our city. We want that, Lord, in our community. We want that, Lord, in our lives. So work in us, work among us, Lord, we pray. And and Lord, I would just pray for anyone today who has not yet met you in the real sense. They haven't received the Savior, Christ, personally into their lives. I pray that their hearts would be open and that they would open, Lord, their mouth and ask you to come into their life, confessing with their mouth the Lord Jesus, believing in their heart that you were raised from the dead, Lord, that they might know your salvation. And so work, we pray, And Lord, would you just take us as people individually and as a body of believers collectively? And Lord, would you use us, Lord, in our community, in our cities, and just out as far as you would send us, use us to bring the gospel of joy to many, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.